Let's turn over to Philippians, or yeah, Philippians chapter 2. And I've been sharing on the love of God all of this week. And there's so many things you can say about the love of God. I'd like to make a little promotion here that uh, back, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Winston-Salem, and I taught on the love of God. But all of that teaching was about how God loves us. And the scripture says that traditions and doctrines of men make the word of none effect. And so this was kind of a totally different approach towards teaching on the love of God. What I did was counter the doctrines that make the word of none effect. And I taught against the wrong interpretation of the sovereignty of God, blaming God for things. We taught against legalism in the law and we taught against... uh, God's love being conditional and based on our performance. And it was it was a unique way of teaching it, but boy, people got it. I had one woman come to me and say she'd been listening for 20 years and finally got what I was talking about and got a revelation of God's love. So that would really make a good compliment to what I've taught this week because that's talking about God's love for us. But then this week I've been talking about how we need to walk in love towards other people. And this is our ninth session that I've spent on this. And so it would be great for you to get all of this teaching. This morning I was talking about that self-centeredness. And again, that's the same principle that this is one of the doctrines that make uh, the Word of God of none effect. And if you are looking at other people through a selfish, uh, self-serving attitude, it According to Proverbs chapter 10, pride produces strife. If you have strife, it's because you're in pride. And if you missed any of that, I'm not going to re-preach it. I'm not even going to summarize it, or I will re-preach it. So. But anyway, we were talking about that, and I used some of these verses uh, from Philippians chapter 2. And I want to start there and just continue on. Philippians chapter 2, it says in verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, if these things are true, then in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Did you know most people don't even have this as a goal today? Most people think, I'd be wonderful, but they really feel powerless to do anything about this. And so this is not a goal. Most people, they don't really have a goal of walking in peace and unity and love with other people. And the body of Christ has long since lost the sense that, you know, there's only supposed to be one church in one town. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to meet in one place. I have no idea how many Christians there are in Colorado Springs, but there's so many Christians in Colorado Springs that there isn't one auditorium that would contain everybody. And the church at Ephesus, they estimate that they may have had as many as 100,000 people, and they didn't have a church building. But they met in homes, but all of those different groups, there may have been a 1,000 different groups in Ephesus, they all recognized Timothy as the elder, the main elder over that thing, and they were of one accord, and they were in one mind, and there was one church. And that's the way that it's supposed to be in every place. It's supposed to be that every Christian recognizes other members in the body of Christ and has a unity in one heart and one mind. But we've lived for so long with all of the divisions that most people don't even recognize this as a goal. Most people have never even thought about it. In the Bible, they wrote to the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi. They didn't write to the churches, even though they meant in different places. It was all one body of believers. 
And so anyway, the point that I'm making is that he wanted them to walk in one heart, one mind, one love. This is the norm. We are living below the norm. And I could get totally off the subject here. I'm not going to do this, but I think it's worth mentioning that I think one of the reasons that we don't see a greater manifestation of God's power is because like on the day of Pentecost, they were in one accord in one place and the power of God was poured out. It says in Psalms 133, I believe it is, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And it talks about it's like the anointing oil upon the head of Aaron that ran down upon his beard and into the skirts of his garment. For there the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. There are some things that are never going to be fulfilled without a corporate anointing, the anointing that unity produces. And you know, many of us, I was talking to a man this morning that says they were healed everyone and we aren't seeing everyone healed. And he was really upset at the church and just saying some things and saying this isn't the way it should be. And I said, you know what, I agree. So what do you do about it? And he, well... He wanted me to get up and start blasting everybody and telling them all these things. And I said, you know what? I'm doing everything I can to try and unify people and to get us into the Word and to do things like that. But I said, you know what? It's just there's some things that you aren't going to see come to pass until we start walking in some unity and stuff. The Bible says, I've used this verse also, James chapter 3, verse 16, where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Confusion is of the devil and every evil work. You can't be in strife and expect to see the blessings of God. Not because God sees you in strife and says, well, I won't bless you. It's not like that at all. God is willing, but when you're in strife, it's like strife is this way and God's love is over here. And if you're in strife and dealing with it, you've got your back turned to the love of God. You can't go in two different directions at the same time. For you to get caught up in strife, you have to have turned away from the things that God's been speaking and doing, and it just hinders the flow of God. It's not God who won't pour out His Spirit, it's us who aren't yielding to it. Strife is deadly. Division is deadly. And so he's pressing here for the unity among the believers. And then he begins to tell you how to do it. In verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. This is what we were talking about this morning. The root of all strife is pride, self-centeredness, self-focus. And so if you don't want this strife, if you want unity, then you're going to have to deal with yourself, die to yourself, love God and love other people more than yourself. So don't let anything be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That is as rare as hen's teeth in this world. There are very few people that consider anybody else to be more important than themselves. There are very few people that consider any cause to be more important than themselves. I remember, remember my niece went and saw that movie, Saving Private Ryan, when it first came out. And she was in high school at the time. And when she came out, she said, I hate to say it, but I don't know a single guy in my high school that would give his life and die like they did on D-Day for some cause. 
They all promote themselves, and it's all about themselves. They don't have a conscience that there's anything more important than themselves. And you know what? There's a lot of people like that today. But there are things that are more important than you. There are things that are more important than your personal success. The welfare of this nation, the welfare of your family is more important than you. And not many people have that attitude, and that's the reason that we have all of the strife and division is because of this self-centeredness and self-focus. And that's what he's saying. It shouldn't be that way. We ought to esteem others better than ourselves. Verse 4, look not on every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If you would look at things from other people's perspective, if you would see their side of the story, it would diffuse this bomb that's on the inside of you that makes you angry. All people who are angry are self-centered. And self-centeredness produces anger. There is no way around it. If it's all about you, then I can guarantee you you're going to be angry because you are going to be rubbed the wrong way all of the time. So we talked about those things this morning. And what I want to do tonight is to say, all right, if you agree with that and if you agree all these things are true, how do I change? How do I get from where I am to where I'm supposed to be? Well, in the next few verses... I believe here's the answer. Look at this in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what you need to do? If you recognize that we are selfish and that we have promoted ourselves, and it's not what everybody else does to us that's the problem, but it's the deficit that's on the inside that is the problem. How do we solve this? It's like, uh, I think I used this example earlier in the week about this guy who uh, came into our church and said the church was full of strife and he was going to leave and go back into the wilderness and live out in the woods because the church was full of strife. And I told him, I said, it is full of strife because you brought it. You're the one that criticizes everybody else. And he said, I'm the, he told me, he says, I don't know how to love. He says, I'm the first person in the history of California that was indicted by the grand jury three times before he was five or what was it, 13 years old. And he had lived in reformatory since he was five years old. And he had never known love. And he says, if you told me to act well, I could act well because I felt well before. He says, when you tell me to love, I don't know what you're talking about. And there are some people today that honestly don't have much of a model to go by. They've been raised in a secular culture. They're more plugged into this culture, into the television, than they are to the Word of God. And there's a lot of people that when you tell them to love, they honestly don't have much of a an example to follow. So what do you do? You know what I told that guy? I mean, he took me back at first. And I said, you know what? You come over and what we're going to do is start studying the Scripture and we're just going to look at Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus treated people. Jesus is love. God is love. And so we're going to find out what He did and then you're going to start imitating Him and just acting like Jesus. And that's basically how I ministered to this man. And so this is what Paul is saying right here. He's been talking about walking in unity. Don't uh, esteem yourself better than other people, but esteem other people better than yourself. Look on other people's things. And then how do you do that? Here he is saying, follow Jesus' example. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And notice it says, let this mind. That means that you let, you allow this to happen. The terminology here isn't saying, plead with God for this mind. 
Beg God to give you this kind of mind. The truth is, it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that we have the mind of Christ. We already have the mind of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 says, You have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. God, in your born-again spirit, has deposited His life, His nature, His understanding, His way of looking at things. We don't have to plead with God to just touch me and give me love. You've already got love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. God has already placed on the inside of you the same love that He had in His Son. Again, I could get plumb off the subject here and go to teaching on the difference between spirit, soul, and body because some people are just looking around right now and saying, where is it? No, I don't have it. They don't feel it. They haven't seen it. They don't think it. And they think, well, I don't have it. But there's a third part of you, the spirit, that was recreated and is identical to Jesus. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Not so are we going to be later, but so are we in this world. First John chapter 4 And verse 17 says that. So in your spirit, you do have love and you have the mind of Christ. And so you don't have to pray, oh God, do this. He's saying just let it operate. Release it. It's a matter of releasing this love, not a matter of praying and getting it. If you're born again, God has already placed on the inside of you the same supernatural love that was in Jesus It's not a matter of getting God to do something for you. It's a matter of renewing your mind. You, first of all, can't release something that you haven't got. You've got to know that you've got it. It says in Philemon chapter 1, verse 6, he prayed a prayer. He says, I pray that the communication of your faith would become effectual. That means it would begin to work by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The way you get this to work is to first of all recognize that this is your nature as a Christian. Some people are confused and they think, well, no, I'm a type A personality and I'm a profit motivation and I've always been a high energy and I'm just a critical person and this is the way I am. No, you aren't. That's your old carnal self. You know, this is the reason. There's a balance to what I'm saying here, but I'm I'm just expressing uh, things I believe that are pertinent right here. But this is the reason I don't like those personality profile things where you take it. And you know what? They are accurate. I've taken them. And I've, I've had people read back to me, say, this is how you react. This is what you do. And I mean, it's scary. Like, have you been following me around? How did you know this is what I do? They are accurate tests of your flesh, but not your spirit. And they're only a snapshot of where you are at that moment. And where I disagree with them is people will look at that and say, this is your nature and you can't deviate. You might change a little bit here and there, but this is who you are. You are just the kind that isn't loving and you aren't kind. That's not your nature. No, that's an accurate representation of where you are in the flesh, but it's not telling you what you're like in the spirit. This is the only way you can know what you're like in the spirit. And I disagree that you are bound to that and you can't change. You can begin to reflect the life of God. So in that sense, I reject those things. And I think it does a lot of damage when a person says, oh, well, I'm just not a loving person. And so I've got an excuse to be mean and rotten the rest of my life. I'm caloric, I'm melancholy, I'm whatever, what are those, 
Yeah, whatever. All that stuff. It's just silly. So anyway, uh, I forgot exactly. Oh, in the Spirit, you are, you do have the love of God. And some of you think, but I don't see it. It's because you're only looking in the flesh. In the Spirit, you do have these things. So you don't have to pray and beg God to do it. What you've got to do is let this mind that you already have, the mind of Christ, an unction from the Holy One, let it function. Renew your mind to it. Get into the Word of God and find out what you have. And then when you say, when you see that you've got the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead and you've got the mind of Christ and the same love is in you that was in Jesus, then when you see Jesus turn around and forgive people, then you say, I've got that. And you turn around and forgive people. And some of you, when you start doing that, you're going to say, but I'd be a hypocrite to say that I love them when the truth is I want to punch their lights out. It just depends who you consider to be the real you. If you consider this external, carnal part to be the real you, then you are a hypocrite by your definition when you sit there and say you love them when the truth is you feel hatred. But if you see yourself as a new person, your born-again spirit has never been angry at anything except ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's not angry at people. Your born-again spirit is full of love, joy, and peace 100% of the time. And if your identity is in Christ, then you're a hypocrite to vent your emotions when the truth is that the real you is full of love for this person. It just depends on where your identity lies. When a person says, I'd be hypocritical to operate in love. It's because you haven't yet renewed yourself and you don't see yourself in Christ. It's not you. It's not Christ living. It's you living. You need to come, become a mature Christian to where you recognize Christ lives on the inside. I mean, you find out how He acts. And since it's the Spirit of Christ, not your spirit, then it's going to act like Christ. And so you just imitate it. And I don't care if in the physical realm, fireworks are going off. Hatred is flowing. In the Spirit, love is flowing. Which are you going to be? Are you going to walk in the Spirit or are you going to walk in the flesh? Most people say, but I feel so strong. Feelings are in the flesh and most of us have conditioned ourselves to be feeling carnal dominated. And so we say, but feelings are so strong. Feelings are only an indication of what your flesh is going on. But in the Spirit, the only way you can know what's going on in the Spirit is through the Word of God. So anyway, I could preach a long time on that. But that's what this is saying when it says, let the mind of Christ be in you. You don't have to plead for it. It's already there. It's given to you. Now, just use what you've got. Let this mind of Christ begin to function. Let the Spirit start flowing through you. Listen to your heart and God will tell you to start loving people because it's already on the inside of you. This is your nature to love people. Not your carnal nature, your born again nature. Your born-again nature loves the very people that you're upset with. Man, that's a powerful truth. Let this mind be in you. And it says over in 1 Peter chapter 4, matter of fact, keep your finger here, but let me just turn over there for a second and read this because I'm not sure that I'd quote it correctly. But 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Jesus' suffering wasn't for Himself. It was for us. Everything that He did was for us. And so, 
we need to arm ourselves with the same mind. And the terminology here is arm yourself, like for a battle in an offensive or defensive position. If you want to fight and overcome these carnal things and feelings and emotions that we have, the way you do it is by arming yourself with the mind of Christ is what this is talking about. And it goes on to say, For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some people think that that teaches that, see, if you'll just suffer, if you'll bear this sickness, if you will bear this humiliation and shame, it'll help you to become strong and overcome sin. No, this is talking about Jesus suffered in the flesh, and he's now ceased from sin. Sin is not an option. He, he has overcome it. Get the same mind that's in Christ and get this same thing to where, man, sin is not an option, where you are the victor instead of the victim. That's what he's talking about. So you arm yourself with the same mind and you'll get the same results. As you think in your heart, that's the way that you'll be. So back to Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to tell you how Jesus operated in love. Jesus is the greatest example of love that the world has ever seen. You know, I've even read things from other religions Every religion on the face of the earth acknowledges Jesus. They have to because he is the most dominant figure in history. There is more written about Jesus from a history perspective, not just religion, but I mean commentators, Josephus and others of the day wrote more about Jesus than about Caesar. There is more physical evidence that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead than there is that Caesar existed. To not acknowledge Jesus, you have to put your head in the sand. You have to be biased and prejudiced and ignore it. So every religion of the world acknowledges Jesus and they will say he is the greatest example of love that there ever was. They have to because nobody can argue. Nobody has ever laid their life down. None of the other leaders of any of these religions died and sacrificed themselves and gave themselves for the people that they said they came to. Nobody is even in the class of Jesus. Now after that, they begin to diverge and say, well, he's one way or he's a prophet or something and they miss it big time. But everybody has to acknowledge that Jesus is the greatest example of love that the world has ever seen. Nobody has ever walked in love the way that Jesus did. And so here it's telling you how Jesus was able to do this. In verse 6 it says, who being in the form of God... The NIV says, being by very nature God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The wording here is a little strange. The NIV says, thought that equality with God was not something to be grasped. You know, that kind of puts me off a little bit because my first thought about that is that that, it sounds like it's saying that equality with God wasn't something that he... Uh, claimed or attained unto. But it must be talking about that it wasn't something to be held onto because the next verse talks about him relinquishing it and humbling himself. I guess that's what it means. But to me, it's it's easier to say it this way, that uh, being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't think it was unjust. He didn't think there was anything wrong with claiming equality with God. The point that's being made is Jesus was God. There's so many scriptures that say this. John chapter 1 is very obvious. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
God the Father called His Son God in Hebrews chapter 1. There's many other places. And so anyway, Jesus was by nature God and He knew that it was just. He was God. And yet it says in verse 7 that He made Himself of no reputation. This wasn't something that was done to Him. He made Himself of no reputation. He divested Himself of all of that glory. Now in the spirit realm, He was still God because at His birth, the angels said, Go see Christ the Lord. That was at His birth. Jesus wasn't born a man and He obtained to becoming God. He was born God in the spirit. He was Lord at His birth. Angels worshipped Him at His birth. In the Spirit, Jesus was every bit as much God as He had been throughout all eternity. But He took upon Himself the form of a servant, is what it goes on to say in the seventh verse, and was made in in the likeness of man. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we're talking about you're supposed to esteem others better than yourself. You're supposed to look on the things of others. And then he starts giving Jesus as an example. Just think about what it was like for Jesus, who was God. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth. And he became one of his own creations. And the Bible says that the heavens, even the heavens of the heavens, can't contain God. This is what Solomon said at the dedication of the temple. He says, the heavens of the heavens can't even contain you. How much less this little temple that I built for you, he says, but nonetheless, have respect unto it when we pray. The heavens, the universe can't contain God. God created something that was smaller than him. God is bigger than the universe, and yet infinite God came down and indwelt and limited himself to a physical body. That's mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling. But it's saying, use this as an example. If you want to know how to think on things of others, if you want to know how to esteem others better than yourself, if you want to learn how to walk in the love of God, think about what Jesus did for you and follow his example. That's mind-boggling. You know, this is, this is not a good comparison. It, it's not even worthy of comparison. But just in an effort to try and understand this, think of an ant. And think about that those ants need help. And if you had the ability, would you become an ant? And live in an ant hole under the ground? And suffer the possibility of being stepped on? Or killed by another ant? Would you... If you were a person, would you be willing to give up being a human to become an ant because you love those ants? I think that, man, what God did was infinitely worse than that because ants aren't as vile and as sinful and rebellious as people are. Jesus not only left all of the glory and the honor and the majesty and the infiniteness of being God but and became a man, but he became a man who eventually was going to take all of the sin and all of the vileness that had ever happened throughout all eternity 
and take it into his flesh and suffer shame and rejection and punishment from his own father because of what somebody else did, what the human race did. That makes that little comparison of us becoming an ant pale in comparison. And yet, man, can you imagine what it must have been like on Jesus' part? It says he made himself of no reputation. He gave up his reputation. He came down here and became a man. I'm sure that this was done by the power of the Father, but He agreed to this. It was His choice. It was voluntary. Man, that's awesome. You know, if you'd go to thinking about that and think about what He's done for us and think about that that same one lives on the inside of every one of you, you know what? You would just automatically become more loving if that was what you saw on the inside of you instead of all of the things that we've been conditioned. If you think on these things, it'll change your life. It'll change the way you act. The problem is most of us don't spend much time thinking about the Lord and meditating on His great love for us. We spend more time watching the news or watching as the stomach turns than we do meditating upon God. And the Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, that's the way you'll be. We watch hatred and strife and killing and all of these vile things. And you know what? You become like what you meditate on. If you would meditate on this, and if every day you'd get up and just think about, Father, thank you that even though you were in the form of God, that you made yourself of no reputation. You came down here and limited yourself to being a human being. And even if there wasn't a cross and the suffering in hell and all of those things, which those things are very real and a super important part of our salvation, just think about the fact that Jesus walked on this earth for 30 years without ever announcing to any person that He was the Messiah, without ever taking His position. Jesus walked by people who ignored Him every single day, people that He created and they didn't even acknowledge him. Think what that must have been like. Think what it must have been like to be the king of kings, the lord of lords, and you're walking along and people don't even acknowledge that you passed by. Man, the humility that he walked in. He never griped about it. He never complained. He never said, do you know who I am? <laughs> Man, he just kept loving people. He was here for a purpose and he humbled himself and suffered uh, being ignored. I'm sure people got mad at him for whatever reason, not for anything he did, but because of their own self. This is talking about before he began his ministry and before there was any reason. Man, just think of all of the things that Jesus went through because he loved us. You know what? That's what's on the inside of you. That's the kind of love that's been deposited there. And all you have to do is let it work. Renew your mind. Acknowledge that it's there. The communication of this faith and of this love will become effectual by acknowledging that you have it. One of the reasons that many of us aren't walking in this is because we honestly don't know that that's what we have. We think, I'm only human. I'm just a man. I'm not only human. I am not just a man. One-third of me is wall-to-wall Holy Ghost. One-third of me is identical to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a new creature. I've been recreated, and as He is, so am I. 
One third of me is full of love and joy and peace. And I've got these things. And it's just a matter of am I going to renew my mind so that that makes two thirds of me in agreement? If I do that, well, then the other third just has to obey. It's two against one. It's a majority. That's the way it works. Think about Jesus making himself of no reputation and he took upon himself the form of a servant. The word for servant here is slave. Doulos. It's slave. It's the most slavish term in the Bible. It's talking about Jesus became a slave. He wasn't a physical slave in the sense that somebody owned him like some slaves, but he was locked in a body. He became trapped in time. Here's an infinite God who limited himself to these things. He became a slave. And I don't even believe that does justice, what happened to Jesus. He did all of that for us. And you talk about love. If you were to meditate on that and think about the great love that God has had towards you and recognize that it's already on the inside of you, I guarantee you some of it would leak out just accidentally if you thought about this. It would, you'd find it just beginning to work. And look at the next verse. It says in verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man. Who found him? It says being found. The word found here is the actual word. What it literally means is perceived. To perceive is what the word talks about. Who found Jesus in fashion as a man? You know what? He did. Here's a thought that will get you. Jesus in eternity decided to become the Son of God and to enter into a physical body and enter into this earth and die. But when He was created in His Spirit, He still was God, Lord at His birth. But you know what? In His physical mind and in His physical body, He was born a baby. His mind had to develop. It says in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus had to grow in his mind. He, could, he didn't come out of the womb speaking Hebrew. Jesus had to learn how to talk. Jesus had to learn how to balance and how to walk. Jesus had to learn how to feed himself. I'm sure he spilled food all over himself sometime or another. His body wasn't coordinated. Jesus had to grow and develop in his mind and in his physical body. And so at one time, the physical mind of Jesus, even though it wasn't corrupted by sin, was was not aware that he was God. In his spirit, I'm sure that he knew that he was God. But you know what? In your spirit, you have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Your spirit is identical with Jesus. Your spirit is all of these things. You're perfect in your spirit. And yet I guarantee you, most of the time, you don't perceive yourself as perfect. You don't perceive yourself as having this power. Most of us are more controlled by this external physical realm and what you see in the mirror. And so it takes faith to believe that in the spirit you are contrary to what you feel and see in your physical realm. There came a time that Jesus, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I would suspect that Joseph and Mary told him sometime that, you know what, you aren't like everybody else. You weren't born with a father and a mother. 
Yours was a virgin birth. I'm sure they told him about the angel, about the uh, miraculous things that happened, about uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth and all of the prophecies concerning him. I'm sure that they told him about Simeon and about Anna coming into the temple and about all of these things. I'm sure they pointed out scriptures to him and started showing him that this was prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bear a child and that he would be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is you. This is you that this verse is written about. He had to learn those things. And I'm sure that as it was revealed to his mind that there was a witness and an agreement and a confirmation in his spirit, but ultimately Jesus had to accept that he was God by faith. He didn't just come pre-programmed with that knowledge. He found himself in fashion as a man. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing to me. If I had been God and if for some reason I was willing to come down to earth and become a man, I certainly probably wouldn't have limited myself to it for 33 and a half years. I certainly wouldn't have done it long term. I certainly wouldn't have come as a baby and have had to learn to grow up and had somebody wipe my bottom and clean up after me and do things like that. That's not the way I would have planned on it. But you know what? God humbled himself and became every bit like we were, of course, with excluding the sin. But he became locked into a physical body because he loved us. He became like us. He suffered for us. He yielded himself to us. You go to thinking about that, and you know what? It's just hard, 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 hard for you to justify being so upset over the seemingly comparatively trifling things that happen in our life when you see the extent to which God's love took him. Man, that's awesome. You know, this is why Satan, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but two out of the three temptations that Satan brought against um, Jesus begin with the words, If you are the Son of God, then command this stone to be turned into bread. Most people think that the sin would have been turning a stone into bread. There's no scripture forbidding turning a stone into bread. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus could have turned a stone into bread. But you know what would have been wrong was if he really had an insecurity and a doubt about who he was. And so he did something to prove who he was. He had just had an audible voice out of heaven say, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Was he going to move from dependence and confidence in what God said about him and he going to trust in some miraculous ability to turn a stone into the bread as proof of who he was? Or was he going to stand on what his father said about him? That was the temptation. Not turning a stone into bread. He could have said, turn this tree into bread. Turn this blade of grass into something else. It wasn't the physical thing. It was the fact of trying to do something to prove. It would have been an act of insecurity, an act of doubt on his part. You know, I'm not going to belabor it, but I'm sure every one of you have experienced this. I remember a time when people used to brag about who they were and, you know, I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. I've seen blind eyes open, deaf ears open, and people would do all of this in the beginning of the charismatic move because, you know, it had been, as far as we knew, 2,000 years since anybody had been healed or spoken in tongues. And, man, when the charismatic move started, people were so excited, they'd give you their whole resume when they greeted you. 
And you know what? I fell into doing that. But then after a while, I got to thinking, you know, this is just pride. It's bragging on yourself and stuff. And I remember going to a meeting at W.V. Grant's church in Dallas. And I was a Baptist boy in a Pentecostal place. And I mean, these were weird Pentecostals (laughs) that did some weird, weird things. And... I went in and somebody came up, I'm so-and-so and and I'm safe, sanctified, and gave me all of their qualifications. And you know what? I just said, I'm Andy. And he waited for the rest and I didn't give him all of these things. And so he was convinced that I either wasn't saved or wasn't baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then he watched me through the meeting and man, I wasn't screaming and shouting and running the way everybody else was. And so he was convinced I wasn't saved. And he and a bunch of others came over and they started praying for me and One telling me to hang on, the other one saying let go and hitting me on the back and doing all this stuff. And they worked on me, laid hands on me till they nearly rubbed the hair off the top of my head trying to get me to respond. And you know what? All I would have had to do is just play their games. But if I had, it would have actually been a compromise on what I believe. For the first time in my life, I knew who I was and I didn't have to do something to convince somebody else. And I just let them go on and... You know, they probably thought I wasn't saved. And I left there thinking, Father, thank you that I don't have to do something to gain man's approval. I don't care what they think of me. I know who I am. I know that you love me. And I was just content to stand in what God thought of me regardless. I wasn't going to get into these religious games. You know, in a sense, that's what Satan was trying to do, is to get Jesus out of just standing in the confidence of who he was and do something to prove it if you are really the Son of God. So it took faith on his part. Can you begin to see that the extent to what it meant for Jesus to come down here and make himself of no reputation? He took upon himself the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Man, Jesus humbled himself, not only on the cross. He humbled himself for 30 years. He humbled himself. He was submissive unto his parents at 12 years of age when they went to the temple. He was about his father's business. He was teaching the lawyers. He was instructing them and they came back and reproved him. How dare you treat us this way? And all he said is, don't you understand that I need to be about my father's business? But he went down and the scripture says he was subject unto them. Jesus humbled himself to his parents and obeyed people that he created and acted like he was their inferior when the truth was he was their creator. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's not a one of us in here. You know, if, if the scriptures didn't explain this to us and present this, it's always amazed me that no other religion on the face of the earth, has anything that even remotely resembles the story of Christianity. Now, other religions will believe that there's a God and they will believe that there's a hell and they believe in some system of you've got to do something to overcome it. But nobody, nobody, the human mind on its own cannot come up with a story like this. That God himself is going to love people so much that he will become one and humble himself, and live for 30 years in total obscurity, and suffer all of these things. Nobody, the devil, couldn't dream this up. 
The devil couldn't come up with this. This is just so God. Nobody but God would think this way of solving the problem. This is amazing. Nobody in here, there's not a one of us that would have ever picked this. This isn't our human nature. This isn't the way we would try and solve a problem. Man, we would come down and blast them. Come down and reveal our power and make them submit and make them do things. Jesus came down and just did just the opposite. Love is greater than all of these carnal things that we think are so strong. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Here's another great truth. You want to know how you humble yourself? You become obedient. You know, one of the greatest things, one of the, one of the things that will bring in you into humility quicker than anything else is obedience. It is not human nature to want to obey other people and submit, especially if you think that what they're doing is wrong or unjustified. But for you to humble yourself, I guarantee it just does something to this selfish, carnal self to submit yourself and to humble yourself to other people and let other people have an advantage over you. In the natural people, that's just not human nature. Everybody wants to, man, get you know the advantage on somebody else, gain the higher ground, always have an advantage so that if anybody gets hurt, it's not you, that you're going to be the one who does the hurting. But to humble yourself and to make yourself vulnerable to other people by obeying them. You know, when you obey a person, it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey... His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. It's putting down a principle that whoever yields and obeys the other person has taken a subservient position, an inferior position to the other person. You know what? There's not, we don't like that. And yet Jesus humbled himself by obeying his Father. Now, there's a balance to this. You never obey men if they tell you to do something that's disobedient to God. You always have to put priority on obeying God. But you should still submit unto their authority even if you don't obey them. And I know some people are confused right there because you think submission and obedience are the same thing, but they aren't. That's another message. But when you begin to obey God, when you make God Lord and you start saying, Father, it's not up to me. I'm not going to debate things with you. You know, we've used this example already talking about the Bible college and we've tried to encourage people. I know God has spoken to people. Last night I had people raise their hands and there was well over a hundred people who felt like God was speaking to them about coming to Bible college and they're still praying about it and trying to find out. But you know what? Once I know that God has told me to do something That's the end of the deal right there. Now it's all about God. I'm going to do it. When do I do it? How do I do it? It's not a matter of if I do it. Once I know that God has told me to do something, I'll do it if it kills me. I'll do it if it destroys me. You know, the Lord told me not to take out a loan on this building to get the the, uh, building finished. $3.2 million. And at the rate money had come in and that we had saved up, I think we had $30,000 or $50,000 to come up with $3.2 million at the time we were doing this and not take out a loan, it would have taken me 25 to 30 years. And you know what? This ministry would have died 
if we hadn't have expanded and gotten this done and been able to accommodate the growth. I mean, literally, it was the destruction, the, the potential destruction of everything God has led me to do. But I felt like that's what God told me to do. I knew the consequences, so I spent two weeks praying before I made a final decision because I just wanted to make sure I was hearing from God. But once I knew it was God, you know what I said? And I remember telling David, I said, if somebody comes to us tomorrow and offers us all of the money that it takes to do this, I'm not taking it. God told me to do it debt free. And I think it was that week. Somebody came and not only offered us $3.2 million, they said, you need $4 million. We've approved you for $4 million. And I turned them down. And you know what? That could have been the end of this ministry. But I knew that God told me to do it. And because of that, there was no option. And if it meant the end of this ministry, if it meant that we failed, I guarantee you I've learned that it would be better for me to try and obey what I believe God is telling me to do than to lean unto my own understanding. I've learned that the hard way. And so I've just made a decision that he's Lord and I'm not. And if God told me to do it, then I'm going to do it. It's just all there is to it. You know what? That's the way that you humble yourself is you make him Lord. You put yourself in a subservient position. And you say that, you know, there's only one God and I am not him. And so God, whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And you know what? By doing that... You humble yourself. You're following the example of Jesus. Jesus found himself in this physical flesh and he humbled himself by obeying what God told him to do, even the death of the cross. Notice there was no limitations to how far Jesus would go in obeying his Father. He would do anything, even dying. And again, the death of the cross, the physical death, I think that this is hard for us to grasp because we are so carnally minded and to us physical, natural things are just everything. But Jesus, by the time he uh, began his ministry, he had come to realize that the real him was that spirit man that was God, that this was just a physical body that he was borrowing for a period of time so that he could function in this earth and so that he could offer it as a sacrifice. I don't think that the physical suffering was the thing that bothered him so much. We put emphasis on that. You know, Mel Gibson's show, The Passion of the Christ, uh, I think that there was a lot of good things accomplished through that, but all it did was just depict the physical suffering, and it didn't even do that well. It did it better probably than most people have ever done it, but the Scripture says that he was so marred he didn't look human. His face was marred more than any face that has ever existed on the face of the earth. In Mel Gibson's show, despite how they brutalized him, he still looked like a human being. According to Isaiah 52, he didn't even look human. No physical beating could do that to Jesus. I believe that's when every sickness, every disease, every deformity that has ever happened to the entire human race entered into that one body. He suffered more than that could have ever depicted. Mel Gibson himself said that he toned it down because if he would have depicted it the way he believed that scripture portrayed it, it would have been triple x-rated and nobody would have ever allowed it. And so he had to tone it down to get it on the screen. But all that did was depict the physical suffering. And when Jesus was in the the Garden of Gethsemane and, and crying, great sweat, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood 
I heard a medical doctor say that what that is from is when your heart literally burst because of agony and, and you sweat blood literally out of your pores. He prayed until his heart broke. Not, not uh, you know, in uh, a metaphor or in, a, you know, some kind of a description of something. I mean, literally, his heart burst. And it wasn't because he was going to face the physical suffering. That may have been a portion of it because he was human. But it was the spiritual side of it. It was the fact that he was going to become sin. He was pure and holy. Even in his physical body, even though it was physical, it had never been defiled by sin. And in his spirit, he was so pure. He was so holy. And here he was becoming sin. For us, I think that's what caused him to say, Father, if there's any other way. So when it says that he yielded and went all the way in this obedience, even to the death of the cross, that isn't only, it isn't limited to talking about his physical body. It was talking about that he literally became sin. Total holiness was willing to become complete sinfulness because he loved us so much. And the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just bear sin in a type and in a shadow and in a token. It's not like God took a little flavor of sin and put it into his life so that he could experience that. That would have been terrible for pure holiness to have even felt one little bit of sin. But the scripture says he became sin. The sin of the whole world was put upon him. Did you know that Jesus became a homosexual, a liar, a thief, a pedophile, a person who commits bestiality? He bore every one of those sins... And when he called out on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a quotation from Psalms chapter 22, I believe verse 2 or 3 right there. And then the next verse tells you why God forsook him. He goes on to say, But thou art holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. You know why God forsook him? Because Jesus became sin for us. He didn't just taste it a little bit. He literally had every sin that has ever been committed in the history of the human race, every sin that would ever be committed, every lustful thought, every desire, and all of the shame and all of the humility. If you've ever done anything wrong and then you felt absolutely worthless because you realized what you've done wrong and what a mess you made, Amplify that by billions and billions and billions of people. And Jesus felt that same shame, that same humility, that same humiliation, the same corruptness, the same hopelessness and despair multiplied by every person that has or will ever live on the face of the earth. Jesus took every bit of that in His own body on the tree and literally became sin. He yielded himself to that degree, not just the physical death, as bad as that was. He took all of this sin and became everything that he hated and had his father, who he loved so much, he was constantly talking about, I do only what I see my father do. I only speak what my father says. Even when people were ridiculing him and saying, man, 
If you were really the Christ, you would have been born in Bethlehem. He could have told him, I was born in Bethlehem. He could have verified it. The census paper showed it. But his father didn't tell him to say it, and so he didn't defend himself. He said only what his father told him to say. Jesus loved his father and was constantly talking about him, and yet he became sin to the point that his own father turned away and forsook him and let him suffer what you and I should have suffered. You know, I just don't understand how people could really understand this and get a picture of this and then turn around and operate in anger and hatred. Now again, I believe that sometimes we have to do things in tough love for their benefit, and it's beneficial sometimes to hold people accountable. But to have this bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness, it says to me that you haven't ever seen how much God loves you. It goes back to the parable we were using last night, that how could you be forgiven $7.2 billion and then turn around and get mad at somebody and grab them by the throat and throw them into jail until they pay you this little pittance down here that they owe you. If we would just let this mind be in us which was in Christ Jesus, think about how he humbled himself. Use him as an example. We're supposed to be Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. We're supposed to act like him. If you want to know how to act, how did Jesus act? This is telling you. Man, he did these things voluntarily. He limited himself. He did all of these things because of his great love for us. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If God humbled himself and thought more about us than he did about himself. Did you know Jesus did not have to come to this earth to straighten out something in heaven? He didn't come here because he had a problem and this was the only way he could get himself straightened out. Do you know God is complete in himself and the Lord could have wiped out the human race. He could have destroyed us all. And I believe that because of his great love for us, that would have grieved him. That's how much he loved us. But you know what? He could have gotten over it. God could have gone on and existed He didn't have to do this. He would have been just in destroying the earth, wiping us out, and not doing anything for us. That's what we deserve. He would have been just in damning every person to hell, and he would have been just. He didn't have to provide salvation. He didn't come to this earth to solve his problem. He came here to solve our problem. He did all of this stuff for himself. You know, there are some people that will go through some hardships if they know it's going to benefit them in the end. But to do something and to give up your life and to die and to suffer so that you could help somebody else and it's not going to benefit you, there's not very many people that would do that. And yet Jesus did all of this for us. The only benefit he gets is those of us who receive that salvation. Man, he gets joy and happiness and peace out of seeing us set free. And then when we return back to Him in love and say, Thank you, I guarantee you God thinks it was well worth it. It was worth the price He paid for you. Isn't that amazing? There's some of you that don't love yourself, but God loves you. God thinks you're awesome. And you know, if you would meditate on those things and think about His great love for you, I guarantee you, it would just naturally reproduce itself in your treatment of other people. You would begin to start acting this way. 
When you get around other people who are walking at a higher level than you are, did you know that it inspires you to want to be like them? You can preach a sermon without ever saying a word by just acting a certain way. You know, I was talking to Jamie about something. I forgot what occasioned it, but it was last year when Doug Neese came and he uh, is our media buyer. He buys all of our radio time for us. And he, I forget the exact figure, but he buys over $45 million worth of television and radio time for uh, Kenneth Copeland and other people. And so anyway, this guy's a high roller and he's the guy that buys all of our things. So he came here and we had this meeting and discussed some things and he took us golfing at the Broadmoor. Broadmoor is a real exclusive place. I mean, it's fancy. And man, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. But anyway, it was one of these highfalutin places that, you know what, after you got through, before I could do anything, one of these caddies came up and started cleaning our clubs and doing all of this stuff. And you're supposed to tip him. I'm not used to doing this stuff. And the guy didn't spend but two seconds cleaning each club. It couldn't have taken over two or three minutes. And so, you know what, I was going to give him five bucks. So I opened up my wallet and all I had was a 20. And I asked David, I said, do you have change for a 20? And I was looking around and Doug came over and, what do you need? And I said, do you have change for a 20? I was going to give him five bucks. And he, he just looked at me and he pulled out a 20 and handed it to the guy. And he said, I've taken care of it. And when he did that, I felt about that big. I thought about El Cheapo, man. You know what? I'm blessed enough that if I didn't have a five, just give the guy a 20. And you know what? I was so convicted seeing a man who just thought differently than I did. And I got convicted about my cheapness. And you know, since that time, I've been a lot more generous. I give bigger tips. I do things because God's blessed me. And why am I sitting here thinking about, let's say, 10% and then half of that, that'd make 15. And I'm trying to work it out so that I don't give them a quarter more than they needed. Oh, that's sorry. So I become a bigger tipper and stuff through that because I'm blessed. And so I can bless other people. Amen. Well, you know what? You get around and if you start meditating on Jesus and the lavishness and the extreme to which He went to love, and you get to meditating on that, you know what? It'll, it'll motivate you. It'll inspire you that, man, if He loved you this much, you know what? I could love this person. I could forgive this person. I could give this person some slack. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if we would just meditate on what this is saying, He's telling us to... Not go through, do things through strife. Esteem others better than ourselves. Don't look on your own things. How do I do that? Simple. Look at Jesus. See how He did it. Recognize that He's placed that same love on the inside of you and let that mind, let that love be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. It's not difficult. It's not hard. It only becomes hard when you spend... Uh, you know, one hour a week thinking about this, and you spend 40 hours a week watching it down, washing it down with as the stomach turns. That's when it becomes hard. When you watch hatred and strife, and that's what you see modeled in front of you, you grew up in a family where everybody screamed and yelled at each other, and this is your standard, well then, yeah, it becomes hard to act differently than that. But if you were to meditate on the great love that God has for us and just think about this, you know what? It would inspire you to become like that. And all you got to do is just imitate it. You know, we've got these bracelets that everybody wears. What would Jesus do? 
And I often see people act terrible and I look down and on their wrist they got a little bracelet. What would Jesus do? You know, I saw a little girl this week slap her brother right after I was preaching on on uh, self-centeredness and it's the root of all strife. And, you know, maybe they weren't in here, but I just thought to myself, I said, man, I've been preaching my heart out and it's like they weren't even here. They never heard a thing. We wear the bracelets. We got the cross around our neck, but we never think about Jesus yielding himself and becoming obedient even unto the death of the cross. We have all these religious symbols, but if we got to meditate on it and you got to recognize what they mean. And if we would think about that, the way you think in your heart is the way you're going to be. Isn't it that simple? Man, that's good news. That's really good news. That's nearly too good to be true news. That's nearly too good to be true that God loves us that much. Man. And if you thought on things like this, you know what? It would be absolutely impossible to be depressed. You can't be depressed. I don't care what your hormones are like. (laughs) Thinking about how much God loves you, that God Almighty died and became like you were so that you could be like He is. Man, that'll change your life. We just are thinking on the wrong things. The key to all these things is understanding this stuff. And if you understand it, it'll work for you. Amen? You know, if there's anybody here tonight who's not born again, it would be a shame for me to have talked about the great love of Jesus and how He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death and did all of these things for you and then not give you an opportunity to receive that. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus has already done it all. He bore your sin. They're already paid for. It's not a matter of will He forgive me. He's already forgiven you. Will you receive the forgiveness? And the way you receive it is by confessing Jesus as your Lord and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. If you've never done that, You must do it. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter if you go to church and do other things. It's all based on what have you done with Jesus. Have you made Him your Lord? Have you submitted and humbled yourself and said, I can't save myself. I have to receive it as a gift. If you haven't done that, you need to do that tonight. And if you've already been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you need to receive that. You must receive the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to release all of this. You know, some of you have listened tonight and you say, man, I've read those exact same scriptures and I never thought about those kind of things. You know, you won't think about this stuff unless you allow the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. This has to come by revelation knowledge. You can't learn it. Matter of fact, a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit You may have been touched in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but if you don't receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit for yourself, you'll lose what I've talked about. You cannot retain this. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has to impart knowledge into you like this. And so if you are born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to function in this. So you need to receive that. So is there anybody here who would say, 
that I need one or both of those. I either need to be saved or and or baptized in the Holy Spirit. Anybody here like that? If that's you, I'd like you to raise your hand so that we could pray with you and that you could receive. Anybody? Just be bold and raise your hand right now. Anybody? Is everybody here saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost? Well, then why in the world aren't we stronger and better off than what we are? It's because we aren't meditating on these things. Let me see your hand if you're saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues. Hallelujah. Keep them up. I'm looking. Man, here's a guy with both hands up. Well, it looks good. I guess everybody here is saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost. What a deal. Thank you, Jesus. So we hadn't got an excuse. Keep yourself in the love of God. You know how you do that? Praying in tongues, meditating upon these things. You know, I encourage you to get the tapes. The nine-part series that I've done. Because I think that if you were to take this home and to meditate on it, these are the foundation, the basic things that God has used in my life. And I believe it would transform your life. And also, it's a great way to share this truth with somebody else. So we've got this on DVD as well as CD. And they're already being made and made available here tonight. So you can get them in just a few minutes. Praise God. Father, I thank you for this week. Thank you for the things that you've shared. Thank you for the people that have come. And Father, we believe that we are not disobedient, but that we are faithful hearers who do the Word of God. That Father, we'll take these truths and act on them. And I thank you that this is going to make a difference in us. And then as we flow in love towards others, I thank you that it's going to make a difference in other people. Thank you that other people's lives are going to be changed through those who are here. Father, we thank you for that. We praise you in advance. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Praise God. We agree and we receive that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God.